This is Beth Bruno, and you're listening to the Fierce and Lovely Podcast. I dream of a time when women rest in each other's presence without judgment, comparison, competition, or fear. When we are known and celebrated, when we lay down our shields of protection from the battle, but also from each other, when we can lament without shame and laugh without guilt, when we are one storyline, fierce and lovely women of God. Join me as I talk with fierce and lovely women from around the world. In this episode, I talk with Sheila Wise Rowe, Boston native, counselor of 25 years, and author of the forthcoming book, Healing Racial Trauma, The Road to Resilience. Sheila and I are in Redbud Writers Guild together, and I've appreciated her leadership in our racial diversity discussions. I trusted her enough to ask some pretty vulnerable questions, which is why, for you regular listeners, you may have noticed my intro has changed. I've wanted to change it for months, but never really took the time. Sheila's honest feedback was the impetus. Listen in and hear why. Sheila, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm I'm happy to be here. I'm excited for the opportunity. Well, how about we start, if you don't mind, with a little bit of just your personal um, story, background, kind of where you are in the world and what occupies your day uh, these days, and then we'll we'll dive into some of the the things I I can't wait to talk about with you. Great. So I um, let's see. I'm a Boston native. So I was born in Boston. Um, have lived here most of my life. Um, I let's see. Background wise, I've had some really early interesting experiences. And interesting is not the best word, um, but I was one of the participants in the early um, Boston busing program. So that had a huge impact on my life. Um, I went to school in Boston, the Boston area, went to undergraduate and graduate school here and have a degree in counseling. And so I've been practicing counseling for over 25 years. And I've worked with um, children, with families, um, women. I did a lot of early work with women who were dealing with sexual abuse. Um, they were sexual abuse survivors, did work with um, folk who were battling HIV, and this was in the um, late 80s, early days, so they weren't sure what that was about. And um, so I walked with um, folk in that and started a Christian AIDS ministry in the late 80s. And um, I have worked in many settings. I worked in secular settings. I've worked in Christian settings. Uh, and I've um, done a lot of group work with people dealing with trauma uh, across the spectrum um, and across racial, ethnic lines as well. Uh, in Boston, um, have spoken around the country uh, in dealing with issues around inner healing, um, have had some time we lived in France for a little bit. We lived also in South Africa for 10 years. And um, from 2005 to 2016, we were in South Africa where 
I worked with women and their children, uh, had a residential home for women who were abused and, and battered, and um, then started a day program for women to get healed and to be empowered to really look at what is God's plan for their lives. And so we were able to raise funds for women to go back to school and to either get a degree in cooking or beauty, and some went to back to college, um, have gotten their bachelor's degrees. Uh, and over the course of that, those 10 years, we were very active in our church and we also ran our uh, inner healing group um, called the Well of Life. So uh, the Well of Life came out of um, a group process that we had been doing in the U.S. At 14 years prior to going to South Africa, in which we felt that the need to really contextualize it to uh, communities of color. And so uh, it's a model that is team taught. We have a book, my husband and I um, wrote, it's called The Well of Life. Uh, and um, it's still available. It's on Amazon. And um, it lays out a curriculum and a process of really helping people to look at what are the things in their lives, including and starting with their relationship with God? Like, how is that, uh, you know, um, affecting their moving forward because of some skewed perception of who he is and how he sees them? Uh, and then we spend a huge amount of time looking at family of origin issues around relational issues that impact a person going forward, we look at issues around abuse and um, misogyny and racism is, is in there as well. Uh, we uh, look at how addiction may play a, a role in a person really, you know, really walking in that abundant life that God um, has promised. And so we take people through this process. It's 10 lessons and we've run the course from 10 sessions to 16 sessions. Uh, and we've had many, many people, hundreds of people go through it. And so recognizing that inner healing is not just about, you know, what's changing various things going on around you or your own decisions and actions, but it sounds like a lot of the systems that have played a part in um, oppression yeah. or, yes, you know, yeah, trauma, exactly. things exactly. like that. Um, and I think, you know, the, the well of life is definitely looking at, you know, a person's, an individual's life, but we always are mindful of that we're, you know, we operate in the context of community, of other people, and how our, our what is our role in that community? How does that community or society in general affect us as an individual? So there's, it isn't about in isolation, we get healed and it's for just for us. But ultimately, you know, the healing, yes, it's for us, but it's also um, for others because we are not separated. There's a South African term called Ubuntu, and which is I am because we are. And there's a, this sense of that we, we can't separate ourselves from um, others around us. Like we, what we do is not gonna just be just about us. There, there are other ramifications to that. So Sheila, you have been working on a on a book that I'm sure comes out of um, all of those years of experience and working with um, so many different people who are experiencing you know a variety of forms of trauma. And your book with IVP will come out 
in a six months or so, right? Healing Racial Trauma, The Road to Resilience. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about that project and what you're what you're hoping um, to to do with with that book and kind of some of the stories that that drove you to writing it. Um, well, the book came out of coming back here, so arriving back in Boston in 2016 and right in the middle of the election cycle, and um, it was very striking and startling because we we had been. Uh, in South Africa, we did read the news, so we and we saw um, CNN on TV, and so we were noticing things that were happening from a distance. Um, and it, there's always a, this thing, you know, you can see something from a distance, but then when you're back there, you know, when we came back here, it was um, very striking. Uh, there was an increased uptick of black men um, being shot by police officers, um, it, just in terms of it seemed as if uh, there had been like this kind of permission given for people to just kind of say whatever and do whatever. And we did see some of that in South Africa. Our eldest son had left to go back to school here. And, um, and so for me as a mom, I was concerned. I was concerned when we were in South Africa, and I was certainly concerned here that being the mother of a African-American male um, who was living on the campus and kind of navigating that um, concerns for his safety. And so that so that was my, my personal concern. But then as I looked at what was happening on a broader scale, more of a macro level, what I was seeing was that a lot of people of color really struggling uh, in in pain, fear, um, frustration, anger, uh, and not really understanding what was going on in society in general and also what was going on within the church. And um, I, you know, I really felt that my years of experience um, dealing with trauma work and um, really was, there was something that the Lord would want me to say to speak into that space. Um, the need for people of color to heal from racial trauma. And so the book really focuses on that. And um, so I have a lot of friends who are um, from various racial and ethnic groups. And I really drew from the people that I knew and to get their stories. And so in the book, I look at the the way in which trauma has affected an individual over time. So some of it is around their earlier, um, their families of origin, their grandparents. Um, I have a story. One of the stories is of a Japanese American man whose father was interned um, uh, and under Japanese internment. And so the impact of that on the life, on his life, his father's life, uh, you know, was huge. And so it's really sharing that story, unpacking that story. Every story, including this one, includes scripture, includes research, um, as well as that person's story. And what was the journey that they took to come to a place of healing? I've, you know, there's a story of an African-American man who grew up in the inner city and his journey and his dealing with um, anger as a symptom of, uh, of racial trauma. Um, there's uh, a person who 
who's a member of the Shinnecock Nation, uh, which is uh, a First Nation tribe in on Long Island, and her journey in dealing with uh, issues around fear. Uh, and so I look at symptoms, the symptoms of racial trauma, and just how it is played out in an individual's life. I share my own story of having been bust in Boston, uh, the consequences of that, and you know, and even going into college, how those issues were still um, something that plagued me. And um, I share the story of a, a Latina uh, from Colombia and her her journey. A, a black South African woman um, and an Afro-Caribbean um, who grew up in um, in London and is now a transplant here. So all of those, it, it's very much embedded in story and it's from the, the perspective of the individual. But my hope is that it's not just a book for people of color, but it is people of color centered and the ultimate goal is that people of color would discover ways and processes to heal. I feel like this book is also for white folk to um, have a sense of what what trauma looks like from the perspective of, of a person of color. Uh, you know, having been involved in trauma work for so many years, we've all experienced some level of trauma, or most of us. You know, and, and whether you're white, black, brown, you may have grown up in a home with an alcoholic parent or there may have been sexual abuse. At, you know, we've had trauma. And, and in that way, in, in listening, in reading these stories, there's a sense of, OK, I can relate to I can relate to that trauma. But the realities for people of color is that it's not just about the trauma that happened to you as an individual now. It's the historical trauma and how it affects, how it affected your family, how it affects you, and how you live day to day when there continues to be, you know, regular assaults of racism and microaggressions. And uh, how do you navigate that way? And in that way, people of color are very different in that. We not only are having to heal from the past, but we're also, it's an ongoing, regular occurrence. And we've got to figure out how to be resilient in that. How do we walk, uh, you know, in, in, in a way in which uh, really, you know, is your, your title of fierce and lovely? Um, you know, how do, we, how do we walk that out in a, in a balanced way? Right, which I want to talk about more in just a second. But the the trauma, you know, the way that I've often heard it talked about, or even my husband, who's also a counselor, talks about it in terms of we all have big T traumas and little T traumas. But what I'm hearing from you is that there's a third space that exists when we're talking about people of color, because it's not right. just, you know, isolated experiences or events. It's it's a space in which all of life happens. And that's something that you, you really can't right. put on a right. on a spectrum exactly. of big T to little T. And in that way, because I think I think that oftentimes for um, for for white folk in general, there can be um, like I, not, like I can't really get I don't get it I don't understand why are people so angry I don't um, but when you look at it in the context of that it it paints a very different picture um, in that. It's not just like this one 
event. It is an event, but it's not. It's also ongoing. So in terms of the trauma that is held through mm-hmm. through history, through heritage with family, through I heard from a friend last week that our DNA can actually, trauma can be kind of written into our DNA in that we, if our um, parents or grandparents have experienced significant yeah. trauma, it can actually impact our own biology, yeah. which I, I mean, I don't know much about that. But so how how did you discover through hearing all of these different stories, mm-hmm. like what does healing look like? What are some of the some of the things that you were able to to learn from all of the different people you interviewed. Well, each in each story, there's a different process that folk have, and I, you know, I wanted to just be open in terms of how how did they find healing, how did how did they grow in resilience, and and so there there's a definitely a range of that. I want to talk first a little bit about epigenetics, which is what you referred to, in which they're they're talking, you know, research is discovering that on some level, there may be a weakening of the DNA um, because of trauma. And so, and they've done studies with Holocaust survivors and um, First Nation tribes. And um, there's also some connection with, um, you know, Black African-American folk who experienced slavery and just the trauma of that and how that has affected us on multiple levels. And so, you know, physically, emotionally, um, there are ways in which that that can affect us. There's also a little bit of controversy around it because, um, you know, the research is really, really new and there's some concerns about um, not going to this place where it's like, okay, you know, people of color have somehow are defective genetically. And so, that's why they are, they are, you know, the way that they are. And that, that is not the case. Um, there has been research that has shown that even with the, uh, what has been seen as, you know, maybe a predisposition towards certain kinds of physical illnesses, um, or even, um, you know, the high levels of stress, you know, not having difficulty carrying that, um, that, having positive experiences can actually undo some of that damage. And, and so the positive experiences in some of the stories have been um, having like for the guy who grew up in the inner city, like having a mentor to really speak like truth and, and life and him, you know, coming to Christ. And like, that was a, that was the beginning of a healing journey for him in dealing with his rage, um, which is one of the other symptoms of, of racial trauma. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, uh, there's another person who part of her healing was really having a sense of, of her story of her and reclaiming her voice, which had been shut down uh, because she, as a black South African woman, you know, apartheid only fell in 1994. And so much of her childhood, uh, it, you know, and it was really about not having a voice, you know, her people not having a voice and how that translated into her adult life and, you know, her really carrying that, that sense of, of lament, you know, needing to lament over, uh, you know, what happened and going before the Lord in, in honesty, you know, about her sadness, 
her pain, her anger around what has happened to her people and the Lord meeting her there for um, the Afro-Caribbean person who actually is my husband. Um, it was, uh, it was uh, the process of being involved in a small group and sharing. And he had a powerful experience in South Africa, actually in a group with white uh, men, Afrikaners, which was, that was deep. Um, but where he really had a sense of the Lord meeting him in, in the place of pain and the baggage that he carried of having, you know, a family that, you know, had experiences in the UK and then his experiences here um, that really damaged him, his sense of self um, as a black man. And then uh, with the Latina woman, a lot, lot of more recent trauma too for her around what is happening um, at the Southern border, um, the things that are being said about um, Latinx folk and the need for um, a safe places to, to, to share, to lament, to get support. Um, Community is a huge part of the healing process um, has been for, for most people. Um, others, it's been, you know, deep breathing and um, lots of prayer, um, reclaiming, you know, their identity and connections within the church of honoring their, for the Shinnecock nation, um, for this particular woman, you know, it's, it's really honoring her, her heritage, which has an identity, uh, which has really been um, invisible in a way. And, and so for some, it's, it's really reclaiming that, you know, that revelations uh, first about, you know, every tongue, tribe and nation is going to be in heaven. And, that's there for a reason, <laughs> you know, it's not that we're all going to be beige, we, mm-hmm. you know, in heaven, mm-hmm. but there's, there's a reason why the Lord has placed us in different tribes and, you know, we have, there are different tongues and, and there's a beauty in that. And it's something that, that will continue in heaven. And so for some, it's reclaiming that sense of identity of who, mm-hmm. who they are. It's processing their anger and their rage. It's, um, looking at, well, how do I walk this out in the future? Because tomorrow is a new day and the potential that something is going to occur, um, whether it will occur to me as a person of color or whether it will be a vicarious trauma. And that, I, and I feel like that cannot be underestimated that when we see, you know, another young man or woman being shot and killed, that is traumatic. Um, for us, you know, for someone like the the Latina who, you know, came here uh, and, you know, had to, mom had to really work hard. They got their papers, but it brings people back to the places of pain and, um, and it brings up fear for the present. Yeah. I think that's something that's so, it's just so powerful, um, you know, lived experience and people who have walked through trauma and yet, the unique way that each one finds healing um, sounds like it uh, sounds like a beautiful book, Sheila. But I wanted I want to talk a little bit more about the impact of trauma and all of the ways that that those triggers happen. And I'd love to talk a little bit about ways in which mm-hmm. I am yeah. creating some of those triggers as a white woman. Um, 
even through this podcast and through the words fierce and lovely. I'd love to dialogue about how how you think some women of color would perceive those words fierce and lovely and where where I'm unaware of the impact of trauma um, for women in in just the the way in which I've handled so much of of my own rhetoric. I think that you know I understand the terminology. So, I mean, you do explain that, you know, what do you mean by fierce? What do you mean by lovely? And I think that when I, but when I look at those words, um, I wonder, um, you know, as a person of color, my immediate reaction was, I don't know about the lovely one. I'm not sure what that means. Does lovely mean that, um, you know, everything is wonderful and it's a bed of roses? What does lovely actually mean? for someone who is walking through trauma on a daily basis. Like how, how, how do, how does that, um, how does it show itself? And, um, and I, and I believe that, you know, there are many women, including myself that I would say I'm fierce. I'm fierce about, um, you know, dealing with injustice, whether it's personal, you know, how it's personally experienced. I personally experienced it or whether it's systemic injustice, like, there's a fierceness around that. And, and I, I do believe that, you know, the women that I know who are Christians, who even appear, whether it's on social media and other platforms, just as very, very fierce. Cause they are, they are very fierce. And yet they are women and, and there are men as well who are hoping still have an element of hope and it ranges, you know, some it's really a deep and abiding hope and others it's like, okay, I'm holding on to hope you know, by a wing and a prayer, but there's hope there. There's, um, I just wonder whether lovely, um, kind of maybe invalidates that process of kind of where people are at. Because there's in the amount of fierceness that is required to live life in this environment, there's no amount of lovely (laughs) that would be sufficient. Is that kind of what I'm hearing? Well, I think that, you know, ultimately, um, lovely, as you described it in terms of, of life, you know, life and beauty. And like, we, we live in, in that reality. We live in that tension. So from, from many people of color, if not most, we live in that tension of having to be fierce. And yet we still have, have lives. We still, you know, have families. We still love. We still, you know, are still pursuing like where's where's there's where is their life and where is their beauty in the midst of it, um, but we've got to be we've got to put so much energy into that and, um, I think that you know if you're um, a white woman who maybe is not in the throes of some kind of trauma right now, then the lovely part can be easier to come by, hmm. you know, and or think, perhaps more of a privilege, yes, or or a, yes. that a choice can be had. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So, you know, in the midst of that, um, you, you know, you can be talking about whatever color of the curtains or whatever, do you know what I mean? Um, and not that we we're not looking at those things too. Like how do we make our houses homes or anything like that? But um, you're right. And the whole issue around privilege is that there are just some things that you don't have to think about. You don't have to have brain space to be taken up by 
wondering, you know, is my kid going to get pulled over and or whatever, or, you know, am I, why am I being tailed in the supermarket? Um, you know, why didn't I get that promotion? Uh, you know, when, mm-hmm. when I'm absolutely qualified and more qualified and why am I getting paid less? And that is an issue for, for white women. Um, but it's an, an even bigger issue for uh, women and men of color. Sure. Sure. Well, and we talked a briefly about my intro to the whole podcast, which has been, um, what does it look like to embrace fierce and lovely and live a big storied life without a chip on our Mm -hmm. shoulder, which for me came from um, a desire to be, be bold and strong and use my voice and not be so cynical. Mm -hmm. Um, And so like, I guess so negative or angry about it all. But I think what I'm perhaps learning even now from you is that through a trauma lens, um, you don't you don't really get to decide all of that sometimes, right? Or who am I to say this is the way in which you need to live out your bold and strong yes, and use your exactly. voice? Exactly. And I think that if you if you think about just from a trauma lens in a in a big macro level, not even just with race, but in trauma in general, we would never say to a woman who is a sexual abusive well. There are people who would say that to a woman, but, you know, but generally you wouldn't say that this is the way you need to behave, you know, because a woman Uh is in the midst of really dealing with the trauma from her past. It's a painful, excruciatingly painful process. And when it's, you know, in anyone who's knowledgeable or even healthy or wants to be a good friend would know that you wouldn't just say to that person, you know what, you got to just stop being angry. No, I'm sure people have said that, but was it helpful? Not necessarily. Right. Well, I think more people say that than we would like, like that you as a therapist would like to believe. And I think the problem is that more people in my world, in a majority culture, say that, whether it's um, audible <laughs> or not, right? I think that's what you mean by microaggressions. Um, is that that is what we are communicating without yeah. without yeah. knowing it? And, a I, lot of and times. I feel like you know one of the things that I, I said in the book is that my hope was that you know for for white folk who are reading this book, you know they're going to be echoes of their own trauma, and hopefully out of that there would be this greater sense of empathy for what people of color are actually experiencing, because you know there there are lots of survivors out there who do look at people of color and think, well, well, they need to just get over it. And it's like, "Mm, you know what? If you think about your own trauma process and your own journey of getting healed, um, think about that when you think about where people of color need to be. Well, it's a, it's a messy process, honestly. And it's, um, I I continue to muck things up and I, I guess you know, Rashida Graham Washington told me when I was asking her similar questions, she said, you know, I said, what do you want me to hear as a white person? And she said, well, you don't get to decide if you're an ally or not. <laughs> that's for me to say. And I guess in my, that's my journey. That's what I'm walking out right now is just trying to, through the mess and the muck of it, mm-hmm. is hoping to be an ally and realizing that okay. shying away from it gets us nowhere. And so it's better to um, just continue to learn. Mm-hmm. I just want to be in a posture of learning and willing to uh, have to apologize and ask forgiveness and make corrections 
in the journey of becoming an ally. Yeah, I, you know, I think that, you know, one major piece around, you know, how, how to be an ally is having that level of, of, you know, of being a listener, you know, of confronting the issues that come up. And, you know, as you said, you know, asking for forgiveness, you know, walking that out. Um, but I, I think the, the other piece is that, and there's been some recent things that have happened um, at conferences where people have, you know, women of color have felt silenced because they were a little bit too, uh, you know, uh, whether it's historically correct about what has occurred um, or even their, their um, comments about white privilege, you know, that has not been taken lightly by the supposed allies. And, and the reality is that being an ally means that you're able to really sit with the rawness and the reality of what people of color have endured. And, and I want to say that, so even when you said earlier about, you know, it's a lovely book, I'm like, it's a hard book. <laughs> My book is a hard book because it's not, it's giving really a, an unflinching look at what people have endured. And I think it's important to, to see that and to see how does one have that, those kinds of experiences that are so deeply um, disturbing is a, is a, not a, the correct word, but but then to walk it out with Jesus and actually come out the other side where, you know, they actually are, don't hate white people, you know, that they're still committed to walking with allies and to be fierce and to, you know, you know, attack systemic oppression where it rears its head. Um, and, you know, that requires a certain kind of an ally. And that's an ally that's willing to, to listen to the hard stuff and to ask questions when they need, mm-hmm. you know, they need to be asked and to be open to what the answer is without correcting the answer or telling us what the answer should be. Well, I hear, I hear that. And I think that actually gets a little bit closer to what I'm trying to go for when I, when I use the word lovely is I think that through writing about racial trauma and the harm that all of your individual stories have suffered, there is a there is beauty in life that comes from that. When we face the hard, when we get into it, I feel like just in honoring right. their experiences right. by reading their story, um, that is a choice to bring life and beauty because it's that hope you reference that we're holding on to hope that we're we're gonna continue to get to do this better <laughs> for one another in community because we're brothers and sisters and so I I hope that I hope you hear that that I I don't want to diminish what you've written by using a word that doesn't yeah, ring true yeah. but I think that's what I'm trying to get at when I use that word lovely I think one of the, you know, one of the major takeaways for me, you know, the writing the book was difficult and painful at various points for me. And, um, and I, I really feel like at the end of the day, I have like this deep sense of respect for the resilience of people of color, that all of the narratives that, you know, the false narratives about weakness and brokenness and whatever, like, yeah, you know, in, in many ways there, there is weakness and brokenness, but there is resilience that is extraordinary 
there and I, I look at my own family history and my own journey, and it is a miracle. It's a miracle that I'm here. It's a miracle that for for many people of color, the, their family histories and journeys that they are still standing and they still are able to walk out each day knowing that something new might happen today. And, you know, we've got to figure out how do we manage that? Where is God in that? You know, how are we, how do we pray? How do we support one another? And um, that there's, there's a level of strength that's there. And, and I, my hope too, is that even as people of color who are reading the book, that they come away with that sense of a deeper respect for their own journey, for the journey of other people of color, um, because there, there had been a tendency of us kind of being separated and, you know, it's like who had, who had had it worse than the other, but that um, collectively we have endured trauma. And yet, how do we move forward with Christ as the center, you know, allowing um, the Lord to heal the brokenness of the past and, and the brokenness that we're gonna, we will experience in the future. Well, it sounds like it's going to be a book that's beneficial, not just to people of color, but, uh, you know, I think just in growing that empathy and honoring the, the story of racial trauma, we white people need to read it as well. Well, Sheila, thanks for your honesty um, and willingness to engage with me around this. Thanks for being on the show today. And thank thank you. Thank you for going there because <laughs> you didn't have to, hmm. you know, and just kind of, you know, looking at where, you know, what may need to change. Um, yeah. You know, that, that does speak to your, your character and your openness. Hmm. Well, I want to be a learner. And if I have any platform at all, I want to encourage others to take the same posture. So thanks for being willing to be a teacher. Thank you. Well, friends, that wasn't easy. Hard conversations never are. But I hope that you too will be encouraged and inspired to take a risk and maybe take the posture of a learner um, with someone in your community um, or someone perhaps you don't even know that well. I don't know Sheila that well, but I trusted her and was willing to be vulnerable and ask some hard questions. Uh, That's the way forward, I believe, in so much of the racial trauma that our country is experiencing in in our world today. I would love to hear your thoughts if you don't mind leaving them on either the Instagram post or Facebook um, or even iTunes review, uh, wherever you want to go and leave some of your considerations as you listen to this podcast and this conversation with Sheila. And when her book comes out in late fall, early winter of next year, I hope you read it. I hope that if for no other reason you honor the stories of the folks that she interviewed and hold their pain as a way to build your own empathy muscle. This is Beth Bruno, and you've been listening to the Fierce and Lovely podcast.